They, they themselves are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto their path, unto our path. And without your guidance, through the instruments, through the means that you grant, there is no way we can see. There is no clear destination. There is no path secure through the pitfalls of this life. But surely only death and destruction await those whose path is not illuminated by the Spirit of God through the means that you supply. I pray now as we turn to your Holy Scriptures that you would turn on the lamp, as it were, in our own souls, that we might see by the light the clear path that we are to walk in, that we might see by the illumination of the pages of the Word of God areas, sins that we must confess, that we must reject, weights that easily hinder us in our race to set aside, that we might pursue Christ, the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, unhindered by sins that would weigh us down. I pray that as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul calls it, is shown through your scriptures this day, that we might be able to see ourselves, the world and time in which we live, and the perspective of heaven, that you would give us the aerial view, the vantage point, Lord, which would allow us to see that you are in control and that your word is the standard and measure of truth and that in you is the hope of eternal life and there is no shortcuts, there are no alternatives, and there are no competitors to your rule and reign. I pray that you would encourage and shore up your church. Who is the foundation, Lord Jesus, or is called to be foundational in proclaiming the absolute sovereignty and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as a pillar and buttress of the truth, that you would shore us up through the proclamation of your word this day, that your saints might be equipped for the work of the ministry. We pray that if there are any in the hearing of this message today, who have not bowed their knee before the Sovereign and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they would do so, repent of their sin, see themselves as wicked and hell-deserving in light of your perfect holiness, and then embrace the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the payment due their sin, that they might rejoice in glorious communion, even joining us at the communion table next week to celebrate these very things. And all of this, Lord, may your church grow, and may your glory be extended even further still. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, what a glorious gift and privilege it is to join our hearts together in acknowledging Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, as is the theme of our service today, and also to open up the Scriptures and to consider them together. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 20 today? Genesis 20, we'll take this whole chapter, Lord willing, in my message. It's a little shorter one, uh, 18 verses. It records an interesting story, and it might give you a sense of deja vu as we read it. As we read it. <clears throat> the title of this morning's message is Spiritual Amnesia. What you may remember uh, when you read this chapter is what Abraham probably forgot. In Genesis 12, he was in a similar circumstance and apparently didn't learn his lesson. So once again, God brings him through a difficult trial to teach him to grow in his faith. Spiritual amnesia is sometimes the situation that sets in in our own souls. Lest we point too many fingers at Abraham, let us look at the, or how the Scriptures might illuminate for pointing back at ourselves. Do we too easily forget the faithfulness of the Lord, especially during times of trial? Are we too easily pushed over by the fear of man instead of being steadfast and immovable, clinging to the Lord and fearing Him? The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the glories of Christ which are magnified by the folly of sin. Have you ever considered that a concept, by the way, or that principle? The folly of sin only serves to magnify the glories of the Lord. 
Jesus had to die for the grossest and most heinous of sins, even the slaughter of himself by unbelievers. This actually shows, even more so, his, the glorious power of his mercy and grace. Only a God perfectly just, perfectly holy, and perfectly engineering all of history to gain him maximal glory could engineer such a thing. The worst of human sin ending up glorifying him all the more. And this is true even in the context of our text today, Genesis 20. Let me ask you to stand once again out of reverence for God's word today. And let us consider our passage. Listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today, Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18. Here is the holy word of God. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, quote, she is my sister, quote. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. <clears throat> Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see <coughs> uh, that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And then God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is a kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham, verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. Verse 18, For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Um, as we are getting our bearings of context here, turn back with me, if you would, to a reference I mentioned earlier, Genesis chapter 12, second portion, beginning in verse 10. Sound familiar? The circumstances recorded in Genesis 20 involving Abimelech, king of Gerar, are, nearly, are virtually identical to the situation in Egypt when Abraham and Sarah encountered Pharaoh a few chapters earlier. Chapter 12, verse 10. <clears throat> Here's the occasion. There was a famine in the land. So what did Abraham do? He journeyed to a place he was unfamiliar with. He was heading into a potential danger zone, right? He must have figured. 
So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Notice verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, and it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. Perhaps you know the rest of the story. It's almost verbatim, exactly the same as what happened in Genesis 20. Pharaoh did indeed take Sarah, presumptively, to be his wife, presuming that she was fair game, as it were. But God brought uh, judgment down upon him because he had, in effect, violated a covenant he wasn't fully aware of, and in so doing, damaged the line of the seed of the Messiah. So God took this very seriously, far more seriously than Abraham did. And before the story was done, we have Pharaoh repenting for this action, uh, reaming out Abraham and uh, calling him on the carpet for this action, and then giving all kinds of slaves and riches for Abraham to take with him back to the promised land. This happened now with two kings. We had Pharaoh in Egypt. Now we have Abimelech, Abimelech in Gerar. Interesting. There was a routine strategy that Abraham would use in situations like this to protect himself in foreign lands. I wonder what you think. Is this a, was this a good idea or a bad idea? Kids, what do you think? Was it a good idea or a bad idea that Abraham would pretend that Sarah was his sister and not his wife? It was a bad idea. You are correct. <clears throat> it is not, it's not bad just because, or on the grounds that Abraham was trying to protect his wife, but more so, it's even more evil when you consider that he was trying to protect himself. In other words, each time Abraham did this, the situation was the same. Uh, he might have escaped being killed, yes, but Sarah was put in danger. She was abducted twice because of the covenantal negligence, if you, if you will. Because if Abraham's covenantal negligence fail to keep the terms and to take seriously the covenant even of his own family, it put his wife in harm's way. I don't think that would be great for the marriage and the trust between Abraham and Sarah, let alone Sarah's own well-being, would you? Wives, how would you feel in that situation? Husbands, I hope you would uh, be ashamed to ever put your wife in that situation, but fear is an irrational thing. There was a routine strategy Abraham would use to protect himself in foreign lands. He would claim that Sarah uh, and him were brother and sister. She was, in fact, his stepsister, as we see in our own text today. This deception was meant to discourage hostile rulers from killing Abraham to steal his beautiful wife. Now, as we see in our story, you might assume one spectacular failure of the strategy, which occurred in chapter 12 in Egypt, would be enough to convince the patriarch to abandon the scheme, but you would be wrong. As I said before, fear of man, fear, is an irrational thing. It doesn't make sense, yet you might be in the grip of it. And if two near catastrophes, furthermore, listen to this, if two near catastrophes were not enough to convince Abraham, or were enough to convince Abraham, to repent of this foolishness, after all, we don't hear of this situation happening again in his life, but it does happen again in the next generation. You'll, we'll come upon an extremely similar story in Genesis 26, 6-11 in future messages. And here Isaac does the exact same thing. Isaac is, of course, Abraham and Sarah's son, and he is also traveling in Gerar in the future. And there's another king, Abimelech, by the way, incidentally, is a common name for a king of the Philistine region. Like there are many pharaohs in Egypt, many Caesars in Rome, many Abimelechs in Philistia. And so there's another uh, Abimelech, uh, presumably, that Isaac uh, comes in contact with, and he lies that his wife is his sister to try to escape potential danger. Same place, king with the same name and everything. At this time in our text, 
Sarah is quite advanced in years, which is another interesting note. But Abraham, remember, he's wealthy and he's an impressive presence in the land. No doubt other kings have heard of some of his exploits. Remember, and we'll touch on this later, defeating the, what we've called the Keter-Lamer coalition. Abraham, with 318 guys, took on four kings and was successful at one point. And so no doubt these stories of his power, of his success and his wealth, many, many flocks and herds and so forth, were known in the land. And so Abimelech probably sought uh, to be on good terms with this man. Perhaps his motive for wanting to marry Sarah was one of alliance. Whatever the motive, however, this much is true. This is what you need to remember, a main point today. In this prospective marriage, the seed of the Messiah himself, that is, Jesus himself, was threatened by this arrangement. One reason Abraham was called to be covenantally vigilant, to take so seriously his call to his family, was yes, because of his family deserved and depended upon the one who is called to be their steward, to be judicial in that regard, to be a good husband and a good provider. But it went even further. Abraham had been given stewardship of the seed line of the Messiah. If Sarah was abducted and became another man's wife, the line of the Messiah, whereby Jesus Christ would come, would be fundamentally compromised. Salvation hinged upon Abraham's obedience in this regard. This was extremely serious. <clears throat> Jesus himself was threatened in his birth, according to the lineage prophesied of old, was threatened by this arrangement. And thus, in our text, it makes a lot of sense that God himself steps in to act according to his sovereign will. God himself steps in. He gives the king Abimelech a dream, speaks to him directly. What does he say? You are a dead man. Wow, shocking. Probably woke up in the middle of the night with that indictment from this you know, voice or whatever it was appearing in his consciousness in the night hour. Wait, 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 what did I do? What's going on here? Totally taken aback. Abimelech, right? But the reason it was so serious is the, or the salvation of man was in jeopardy if this situation was allowed to continue. Abimelech's life and kingdom are spared in spite of Abraham, and the covenant line of Jesus Christ is spared in spite of Abimelech. And who is this testimony to? Not Abraham, not Abimelech, but our Lord. Praise the Lord that he preserved his Messiah through the ages. Could we trust Abraham to be faithful, to steward the seed line? No, he failed on repeated times. Could we trust Isaac, Jacob, and so on and so forth down through the line? No. If you place your trust in the will of man for anything, I can promise you this, you will be discouraged. The will of God the power, the authority, the intentions, the decree, the purposes, and the sovereign order of the King of Kings is the only place to place your trust. And without that, we would not have received our Messiah. So what's the backstory? We'll come upon a chapter of it in our study today. God preserving the line of His Messiah. So let us explore on three points under this heading. Serving to rebuke and proclaim. This account features the following. So this passage is a rebuke. And it's a proclamation, proclamation of God's glory and a rebuke of those who do not steward it well. And it features the following. Number one, the overruling of man's intentions. Number two, the folly of crippling excuses. And number three, the healing of nations. Number one, the overruling of man's intentions. Number two, the folly of crippling excuses. And number three, the healing of nations. These three ideas are featured in our text today. Firstly, one through seven, the overruling of man's intentions. Notice verses 1 and 2. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, lived between Kadesh and Shur. 
It's natural when you're entering into territory you're unfamiliar with to have a twinge of uncertainty and fear. I mean, even when I'm planning to go on vacation, I'll study a map, whereas normally I don't. I want to get my bearings. I'm nervous about the car. I get it double-checked, and I want to make sure I have the stops all arranged. Because when you hook up that camper trailer and head west for, uh, you know, Washington State, suddenly you're aware of how dangerous the road really can be when you've you know, got a family of 10 and a bunch of cargo in tow, right? So it's natural if you're moving to some place to have a heightened sense of awareness and maybe concern about the uncertainties that you will encounter there. So no doubt, moved by these kinds of impulses, Abraham makes plans accordingly. He begins to, or he takes up residence, he moves from the Oaks of Mamre, where we last see him, to Kadesh and Shur, and he uh, sojourns in Gerar. And in Gerar, of course, is the king Abimelech. Verse 2, so Abraham makes his plans, kind of according to their old plan. He's going to remind Sarah of this. And Abraham said to Sarah's wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, first of all, I want you to notice something here. Abraham is acting out of character of a man of faith. This is not one of the shining examples of his obedience to the Lord. It seems that he is operating out of an inferiority complex. I like this term because it well describes the church in our day sometimes. God has given us God has given us a role as the church of Jesus Christ to be ambassadors of the king of the universe. We kind of set the tone for this service by reading Psalm 82, which declares that the Lord takes authority in a seat of rule and reign in the midst of the council of all other claims to authorities, and he judges between them as their sovereign. That's the kind of God that we serve, the creator and the king of the universe. Do we always act like it? You and I are an ambassador of the sovereign who spoke this world into existence, this whole universe, by the word of his power, who said in Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light. Do we act like ambassadors of the king of kings, or do we act like victims of the king of Gerar? Do we act like victims under the thumb of whoever the Abimelech of our day is, whoever the Pharaoh of our day is? Too often we do so. There's a message for us as believers and as an institutional church to repent of our inferiority complex. Abraham did not have any good reason to fear because God had shown himself faithful and had given him secure promises that basically made Abraham invincible until he had the son of promise. Imagine having that kind of security and assurance from God's word itself, from God himself, that you will not taste death until the son of promise comes, neither will your wife die, even though you're in old age. Yes, Abraham and Sarah were invincible until God had given him that promise. But So why is he fearing death by a king? He's not living according to the word of God, is he? He's living according to probability calculations in a fallen world. Well, this is an inferiority complex that he should repent of. God overruled Abraham's intentions to keep a low profile. This is interesting. Abraham was called to be a blessing to the nations. Do you remember this? Turn back with me to uh, Genesis chapter 12 again. In God giving this covenant, uh, making this covenant with Abraham, he really reiterates this several times. But notice among the purposes and callings of Abraham the following, verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham is called to have a great name. That means that he will be known as the one who is in covenant, special communion with God. So is Abraham supposed to lay low, pretend that he's just a dude, you know, passing through, and yeah, this is my sister, and we're really of no account? 
No, Abraham is supposed to boldly represent to the nations the way whereby man can be reconciled to a holy God. He had an evangelistic calling. I will bless those who bless you, it says in verse 3. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. How is Abimelech supposed to bless Abraham and Sarah when he doesn't not even aware of the nature of their relationship that through that husband and wife, a covenant son will be born which would hold out hope if Abimelech would repent and believe for his own salvation when he would be born in the future and faith in that reality would be, uh, would be the very thing whereby a pagan king could repent and believe. How is he supposed to know if Abraham is pretending that that doesn't really exist or not boldly declaring these truths? I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Bimelech, against, you know, unbeknownst to him in some ways, in his ignorance, was about to dishonor the covenantal relationship. Thus, God woke him up in the middle of the night and said, you're a dead man. What? What? He should have known. But Abraham didn't tell him. And thus, he was in that situation. Furthermore, chapter, or verse 3, chapter 12, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Are we called to keep a low profile? Are we called to just sort of go along to get along? Or is there a calling that we have to bring the gospel forth boldly, even when it's not always popular, or when we fear that it will earn for us persecution, rejection, and mockery? We are called to something like a calling of Abraham, to act like an ambassador of the king and creator of the universe, to repent of our inferiority complex. However wicked Abimelech was, however, notice this in the text, he knew in his conscience that he was guilty of woman stealing if he went through with this act. In other words, men are not so different as you might assume. There is buried within the conscience of every image bearer of Jesus Christ, written on his, uh, deep within his psyche, the knowledge of God's law. And when God proclaimed the truth to Abimelech in that night dream, he, knew, he woke up in a cold sweat knowing that if he were to steal another man's wife, especially an important and significant one like this, he was in big trouble. Why did he know that? Because he was made in the image of God, and there was a sense of an understanding of God's truth, even in this pagan king's heart, right? Abraham could have said as much, but he was too scared to. So God stepped in. He overruled Abraham's intentions to keep a low profile. This uh, reminds us, this emphasizes to us that kings need the gospel. Kings need the gospel. Abraham was given a sort of proto-great commission call. Remember, we have a great commission call. Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. All authority has been given to him. Baptize and teach in the name of Jesus Christ everything that he has commanded. He is with us to the end of the age. And this message goes forth to paupers and to kings. Matthew 10, 16 through 20 promises that those who are legitimate followers of Jesus will be drugged before judges, princes, kings, and those who are in authority. It may not be you, it may not be me in the course of our lifetime, but you should be encouraged that the simple understanding and proclamation of the gospel that you hold in your heart is strong enough to zip the mouths, to silence the rebellion, and to condemn a king, no matter how powerful his empire is, no matter how much armies he boasts in his you know, authority, and no matter the reach of his realm. This happened. Fishermen became authoritative proclaimers of the gospel. And there were guys, unbeknownst to Caesar, who suddenly caused him to you know, sit up with rapt attention as Paul was brought before kings and people in authority and Caesar after Caesar after judge after governor began to hear the gospel. Look to the testimony of Paul 
and see how the confidence that Abraham was called to have is evident in a New Testament scenario. And take heart. You serve a greater king still. It doesn't matter in some sense how tyrannical American government gets. You see, most of us, if we're among the conservative types, we're just hoping that we can pool our resources enough to lobby our senators, congressmen, and potential presidential candidates enough to please, 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 please secure for us our religious liberties. Now, when we beg and plead like this in the political sphere, is this acting like we are ambassadors of a king before whom Joe Biden must kiss the son lest he be angry in the way and he perish in a moment if he doesn't repent? No, I don't think so. Rather, we should have men who go before these places so long as they're you know, have opportunity and declare to them there is a day of reckoning coming and you, among, more than most, will be responsible in your policies for whole wakes of destruction if you do not repent, fear the Lord, and revere His law and rule in accordance with His word. Is there a rich tradition in Christianity of this kind of preaching to kings the gospel? Yes, there is. Jonah did this in Nineveh, and the king and the whole city repented. Nathan did this to David. And David repented of his murder and adultery, and the entire direction of his heart and kingdom was changed. Jeremiah proclaimed to the wicked kings that they must turn or else. They did not heed his word, and so exile came. In exile, Daniel proclaimed to multiple administrations the sovereignty of the Lord. Joseph, a little out of order, back in Genesis, proclaimed to Pharaoh boldly the truth of his own dreams in the night. John the Baptist said... You better not marry, uh, I can't remember exactly the circumstances, for Herod proclaimed the law of God as to marriage to that king and he promptly lost his head. Nevertheless, he spoke the truth. Jesus spoke to those who were in authority. The apostles did the same. And we have a similar call. Kings need the gospel too. Let us not suffer with an inferiority complex. Let us repent of this, uh, lest we fall into the same trap that Abraham did. Overruling man's intentions. Abraham wanted to keep a low profile, but God sovereignly put him in a place where, nope, he was going to have to actually represent the covenant to this king. And God uh, pushed him out so that at the end of this chapter, Abraham goes from pretending he's something that he's not to actually praying that God would relieve this king of the judgment that would otherwise render them infertile and destroy them. And this is God's sovereign grace all the while. We see this in this uh, context. God overruled Abimelech's intentions of having his way with Sarah. Notice verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Is this an accurate statement? In other words, does Abimelech, have grounds to appeal to his own innocence of heart in this instance? Well, no. Verse 6, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Let us not leave this passage without noticing that it is God's will who is sovereign over man's. Now, another way to phrase it is this, The will of God is never subject to the will of man. However, it is true the other way around. The will of man is subject to the will of God. Could Abimelech have followed through on his intentions and desires to violate this covenant, even pleading ignorance? The ultimate answer is no. Why? Because God had kept Abimelech from violating the covenant line of the Messiah. 
God is sovereign. Could Abimelech stand before the Lord one day and say, on the basis of the integrity of my heart, you should let me through these pearly gates? I've been a great king, especially judging on a curve. You know, I kind of went through the right proper procedure in these different times, and well, you can excuse me, this or that. No. That is pleading your case in salvation, justified on your own works. And Abimelech has no grounds on which to stand in his own works, and neither does Abraham. Abraham, Abimelech, you and me have all demonstrated in our covenantal faithlessness that we cannot be saved by virtue of our integrity of our own law-keeping. This is the basic gospel. So to whom do we make our appeal? The God who preserved the covenant line through which the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the son of man, would be born, Jesus Christ. He, the perfect law-keeper, can justify an Abimelech and an Abraham, and he has and he will cling to him. He is the one who justifies. He overrules man's intentions. He changes your heart so that you desire him. In the intentions here, Abraham wanted to lay low. God overruled his plans. In his intentions here, Abimelech wanted to get, glean for himself a wife for whatever purposes, you know, forge an alliance or otherwise, expand his harem and so forth. God overruled his intentions. The God who overrules the intentions of man is the one before whom every man must bow or else. I pray that he would move your heart to do so willingly if you have not already. Because if you don't, you're a dead man. That's what the uh, scriptures say of Abimelech. And that is true of everyone who does not bow before his sovereign authority. Major point number two, serve, serving to rebuke and proclaim, this account features the folly of crippling excuses. And uh, notice again how Abraham and his inferiority complex, as we've called it, sounds really pitiful in verses 8 through 13. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. He called his servants. He's going to have a what gives meeting, right? He calls Abraham to himself as well and says in verse 10, What did you see that you did this thing? And then Abraham gives a pitiful excuse. Uh, he says, uh, prior to that, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me this kingdom and my kingdom, a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Kids, is Abimelech right or wrong in this instance? He says to Abraham, you did something that was wrong. You didn't tell me the truth about your wife. Is, did Abimelech, is he saying the right thing here or the wrong thing here? The right thing, that's, that's correct. Isn't this interesting? You have a pagan king bringing a rebuke against the covenant patriarch. Does he have standing in this case? Yes, he does. Why? Because the word of God is ultimately the standard. In this instance, in this scenario, there's a rebuke of Abraham because this pagan king is actually uh, paying closer attention in this moment to the word of God, having been awakened in his sleep, you know, to the Lord and his sovereign authority than Abraham was remembering God's promises to preserve the covenant against anyone who would seek to undo God's purposes. And so we have this. So what's, David, or what's Abraham's excuse? The folly of crippling excuses. Verse 10 or 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. And then he goes on to justify himself by saying, technically, she is his sister in a sense. Whom to fear? There are only really two options in this text. You either fear man and the power and the manipulation, the influence that he can wield, or you fear God. Uh, Dave had a great point in his message recently. He said from Isaiah that God has designed that you fight fear with fear. Applied here, that is to say, you fight the fear of man with the fear of God. 
And was Abraham uh, doing that in this instance? Was he fighting the fear of Abimelech with the fear of God and realizing, okay, what's more powerful? Abimelech's intentions to steal my wife or God's purposes to preserve the seed of the Messiah against all odds for multiple generations until Jesus Christ is born at the fullness of time to secure the salvation of all of the elect? Well, I think number two, if you really thought about it, is really deserving of your confidence, right? So Abraham was fearing man at the expense of the fear of God. And he was called to fight fear with fear, to fear God, and to... Uh, in, and then let the fear of man go into a second category. Turn back to Genesis 14. I want to just give to you a, a kind of a contrast, a juxtaposition. Abraham, the folly of his excuses are even more profound when we consider the faithfulness of the Lord to him. There was a time when another one of his family members was kidnapped. Do you guys remember the bad guys? Kids, remember the bad guys came into Sodom and Gomorrah and they kidnapped one of Abraham's family. Do you remember who it was? Not his sister. They took his nephew. Do you remember what his name was, kids? Lot, Lot and, and his whole family, right? Uh, extra points if you know the, the king who, was con who had... So there's a king from the north. He had four nations, three nations with him. Do you guys remember his name? Extra points. Maybe a dollar in it for you if you remember this one, kids. We call it the Something Coalition. Oh, I might have even stumped the Ingebretsons on this one. The Ketter-Lammer Coalition. Oh, sweet. Didn't lose a dollar. So let's go to Genesis 14. And here we see an example of God's mighty power through his servant, rescuing one of his uh, family members who had been abducted. Verse, verse 14. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen, so it would be Lot, had been ca taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, Extra points. Kids, do you remember how many men there were in, in Abraham's army? 300. Oh, so close. Any other takers? 350. So close. Let's split the difference. 318. So they were born in his house. These were Abraham's trained men. And he went and pursued as far as Dan. And then listen, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. So now he's got like two groups, 150 plus. And he pursues them to Hobah, uh, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So you see here, when Abraham was acting in faith, he went forth with 318 guys and defeated a coalition of four nations who had abducted his nephew and taken all their possessions and his family. In this instance, Abraham was acting like a king. He was acting like a man of faith. The Lord was his shield. He, had, he said as much in the next chapter, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And of course, by implication, the Lord had just proved it. I am your defense in war. I am your key to success. With 318 guys, you just defeated an army of four nations, and you took back your nephew. Now you go to our um, passage today, and you see the folly of his excuses, how much more pitifully they appear. And how do you think Sarah felt? Okay, you took 318 guys and declared war on four nations to get our nephew Lot, who really doesn't respect you that much anyways, but you want me to lie about my relationship with you and then get myself in trouble all over again? You see, it must have had some, there must have been some real tension in the home. And it was an indictment of sword on Abraham. Who does he fear? If you fear man, you will do foolish things. You will contradict yourself. You will forget what the Lord has done. 
you will fail to remember what he had built altars to remember for in the past. Abraham should have revisited the altar where God gave him victory over the Keter-Lamer coalition and where he had celebrated by way of victory feast with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom that God is powerful to defend his purposes, even leading an army of 318 in victory over four countries. So whom should we fear? The folly of Abraham's excuses is evident in uh, the context. Secondly, the pagan rebukes him, as we said. Abimelech says to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you? So this kind of stings. Abraham eating humble pie. The word of God had just come to the wicked Abimelech and told him what's up. And Abraham has forgotten something in this as well. I want to turn you back just a chapter or two to see the vantage point that was lost on Abraham in his pitiful negligence. This is chapter 18. In Genesis 18, verse 16, we have this reference. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then later, there's, now I want you to notice this positional language again in 21. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. One thing that we've pointed out is a pattern in the judgment passages of Scripture is this kind of looking down upon this positional language. And we've uh, related this principle to a term called taking the aerial view or heaven's perspective. In this instance, God was about to judge an entire city and Abraham was walking with the Lord in a high place or maybe even caught up into the heavenlies, we're not sure. Suffice it to say that the vantage point he retained was hearing God's purposes and looking down upon this city. Um, when you're driving into a city, I remember you know, being a kid who didn't get out too much growing up in the great Northland of Minnesota. The first time I started to head south for college and I went to school in Dallas. Remember the first time kind of driving in that adventure and coming into the shade of skyscrapers in, you know, uh, in say, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then later in Dallas and so forth. And you can kind of look out the window and you can't even see the top of the building because it's right on top of you. When you're in a city like that, you feel very small. You're just a small little, you know, toy car, as it were, you know, driving amongst these incredible edifices. But think of the perspective difference between that and being in an airplane. Kids, you ever been in an airplane and seen a city out the window? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, awesome. Liam, in three years, so let me tell you what you'll see. You'll fly up in this airplane, you'll look out the window, and suddenly the biggest building is going to look like one of your Lego you know, structures in your basement or wherever you play with Legos. It's going to be awesome. You'll be in that airplane and you'll see this tiny city. And that's a little picture of a perspective, right? And from God's purposes in judging the kingdoms of the earth, he lifts Abraham up and says, see that little city Sodom down there? I can snap my fingers like this. And as archaeology records, a 10 megaton bomb of exploding asteroid can be detonated over the top of that city and render the soils infertile for 700 years. Science even tested this because of the salt that uh, actually contaminated the soil. It's again, I will do it. And then Abraham immediately moves to intercession. And Abraham is faithful at this point. In this story, in Genesis 18, on into 19, Abraham is a man of faith and acts as such. He has secured the vantage point of God's purposes. He is acting as one who has covenant confidence in what God has planned to do. 
and he stands undaunted and pleads and makes an appeal and intercedes for the nation who is doomed. But in this instance, he has to be coerced to do that. There's a pagan who rebukes him for this uh, failure. And finally, there's an identity issue as well. Now, who was Sarah and who was Abraham? Well, of course, he said, pass yourself off as my sister in order that your life might be preserved. But just one note I want you to look at in Genesis 17. Who was Sarah, in fact? Was she uh, just somebody who was seeking, should she see herself or should Abraham pass her off as somebody who is just no more than a sister to keep a low profile just in case there might be a bad guy who wants to steal her or kill Abraham to acquire her as his wife? Well, no. In Genesis 7, 16, this is what God had already said. Verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kids, what does Sarah mean? Do you remember? Princess. Sarah means royalty. The promise here is that she would be the queen mother of nations. Verse 16, I will bless her. Uh, From her kings of people shall come. Verse 17, Abraham fell on his face. And, you know, of course, he laughed in response to this. Nevertheless, this was true, and it would come true. From Sarah would be born nations. She was a queen mother. Her name meant princess. She was royalty. Was she acting as royalty? And did Abraham affirm her royalty in Genesis 20? No. In the face of another king, he had her pass herself off as something that she was not, a superficial identity. Uh, he counseled her, or he directed her to mislead the world by embracing a superficial identity. Who was Sarah? She would become nations. Kings of peoples would come from her children. She was the queen mother of God's future purposes to save the world and bringing the Savior himself through the lineage of her children who would bear children and so forth until the coming of the Son of God. Who are you, Christian? Who are you? Are you a blood-bought saint? an ambassador of Jesus Christ? What is your primary identity? Is your position at the right hand of the Father secured by the blood of Jesus thus in such such a way that you can walk with confidence even though there may be wicked Abimelechs in our day? Do you interact in our world forgetting who you are, forgetting the promises of God and the strength and the integrity of His covenant bond with you? Do you remember when you turn to the Scriptures, the promises, That since God has raised Jesus to the right hand of the majesty on high, according to Hebrews chapter 1, and if you are to be lifted up with him to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, and if God has commissioned you to be his vicegerent, that means king or agent or deputy that serves on his behalf to take gospel dominion in the areas to which he's called, is there any reason for you to act, pass yourself off as lesser, or to assume a different identity, or kind of adopt the principles of the world, or just blend in with the culture. No, you are called to stick out. You are called to be different. You are royalty in a sense. This does not speak anything of your own merit, but it does speak to the glory of God. In in fact, if you were to hide the light under a bushel, as it were, or if you were to dim the brightness of the light of Jesus Christ, or the reflection of His glory in the confidence and the commitment and the faith in which you walk, it does a disservice to Him. It's to fail to communicate to the world that it serves at his pleasure. It's to fail to communicate to kings and people in authority that there's a higher king still to whom they must bow. It's a failure to communicate to the world that there can be an assurance through covenant relationship, through a relationship and a blood bond bond with Jesus Christ that you can rule and reign with him 
that you can enjoy his glorious presence one day, cast your crown with the elders before the throne of the Almighty and enjoy a perfect remade world in the future, singing songs of his glory with all the saints who've been redeemed. And so Abraham was forgetting all of this at the moment of his insecure moments where the folly of his crippling excuses was evident. But we are tempted to do the same so often. So what's a good antidote against this? Listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God by taking seriously who God has given you, made you, what your identity is in him, and what Christ has done on your behalf to secure the promises of your eternal future. If Abraham had listened to those things, he would have acted differently, and we see him acting differently at different times. But however, at the point of our text today, he needed a wicked king to bring him a rebuke to correct him in this regard. The folly of his crippling excuses are evident. He says, oh, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. You can almost hear his voice kind of trailing off and speaking under his breath, realizing how foolish the words sound as he says them. Then we have a turning point. Verse 14, and our final point. In our text, which serves to rebuke and proclaim, it features the overruling of man's intentions, the folly of crippling excuses, and finally the healing of the nations. There is such a turning of tables, it's difficult to imagine uh, the reversal here. Or it's hard to fathom. But notice what happens. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. This man who had held from him the truth, had done him wrong, had put him in danger of God's execution, as suddenly giving gifts to Abraham? What accounts for this sudden change of events? Verse 15, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. What? Welcome. You can stay here as long as you wish. You can have the choices of properties. You are my guest. Why would Abimelech do such a thing? Was it on account of Abraham? No, Abraham had done him wrong. He was angry with Abraham. You can sense it in the text. However, Abimelech understood that voice that came to him in, in a dream, that should not be messed with. And if that voice that came to him in the dream, Almighty God, if this was his favored son, then he was going to show favor to him as well. Abimelech is seeking refuge in covenant. He's bringing offerings of repentance. He is, his heart and has been corrected by God's word in visitation. And now he's taking active steps to put himself in right standing with the Lord Almighty. And since Abraham is God's favored one, in spite of Abraham's failure to communicate as much, God has told him this. Therefore, he is going to worship the Lord by bringing to Abraham sheep, oxen, servants, so forth, and granting to him a welcome, the red carpet, to stay in his land. Furthermore, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated." the healing of the nations. Now, there's going to be an action that Abraham takes at the close of this text that is absolutely staggering. Before we get there, I want you to notice something. The wealth of the nations, as tribute to the king of kings, is flooding into Abraham's coffers. And this is a picture of, of something that was to come in the future. Would there be other times in the history of God's word where the wealth of the nations would stream in to the people of God as tribute to the king of kings. Yes, it would happen uh, to Joseph in Egypt and furthermore in the Exodus. 
the Egyptians would willfully give of their riches and storehouses to the people of God because the authority of Yahweh had been proven by plague after plague, by wonder after wonder in their land. And so the wealth of the nations would become streaming in as tribute to the ultimate king of kings. In the reign of Solomon, the exact same thing happened on a vast international scale, at least at the time. Solomon was richer than all the kings at the time. Why? Because the wealth of the nations was streaming in as tribute to honor and to acknowledge the authority of the king of kings. This happened at Jesus' birth. Kids, can you answer this question? What happened or near Jesus' birth at the time when Jesus was born that represented the wealth of the nations coming in as tribute to Jesus? Do you guys know? The wise men is correct, Sonny. Very good. The wise men, presumably dignitaries from a foreign land, journey to the place of the, in, of the birth of the infant Jesus Christ at this time, some two years old perhaps. And they bring, what do they bring, kids? What are the gifts that the wise men bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, representing the riches of the kingdoms streaming in as tribute to the king of kings. And this will continue to manifest itself in the future in a spiritual sense. Right now, tribute to the king of kings by way of people being ransomed from every tribe and tongue and nation, souls, people, are streaming into the kingdom of God as testimony, the tribute of the nations to the glory of Jesus Christ. For him, he will eventually reap the harvest of all the nations. Revelation says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God, and the true Solomon will declare universal lordship without any competitors. And at the day of his reckoning and judgment, this world is his, all its riches, every knee bows, no other competitors, no other authority will ever usurp or attempt to usurp him again. And there's a little picture of this foreshadowed in our text today. When a pagan king worships the Almighty God, who appeared to him as a dream, in a dream by giving of his riches and wealth tribute to the one who he recognizes has the power to kill him if he doesn't bow his knee. He also, furthermore, seeks refuge in relationship with Abraham. If God has blessed this man, the one who woke me up last night and said he has the power to kill me, then I want to be on good terms with this man. In other words, this king recognized that only through the significant son that God had appointed was hope for his future. And this is a picture of a significant son to come. God would bring through the line of Abraham another significant son, and if we have a good relationship with him, we can be in good standing with the father. And that would be the son of Abraham, the son of David, as we mentioned before. That would be Jesus Christ himself. Have you taken refuge in covenant with him? Have you followed the example of an Abimelech who recognized, okay, if God has had favor on his son, then I'm going to bring of all my tribute to him, recognize his lordship, and seek to be in relationship and covenant with him? I don't know if Abimelech was a believer, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was. Because these actions correspond to the position of the heart when you recognize God's significant son and you offer to him the glory and the worship that he deserves and you say, I'm going to tie my fortunes to God's purposes and salvation through this man. Ultimately, that would be Jesus Christ. Now, finally, Abraham does something quite staggering. Verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. One last reference. Turn with me to... Revelation 22. 
Revelation 22. There is significance in this event as well. We see offerings and repentance, the tribute of the nations, coming in to bless God's significant Son, to honor Him. We see refuge in, sought in covenant with the one whom God had anointed and appointed to be His covenant head at the time, provisionally speaking. And finally, we see this appointed one, this significant son, Abraham, praying, and through the intercession of Abraham, the nation of Gerar is healed. What does this picture? It pictures the intercession of a significant son to come. In Revelation 22.1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. A little picture in our text today of the fulfillment that will happen in the future. Jesus Christ, because He is the ultimate covenant keeper and the ultimate covenant Son, will one day, through His intercession, through His prayer, through His work on Calvary, through His work to redeem both the hearts of man and the entirety of God's world, He will plant the tree as it were. He will nurture and water the tree of life as it were, such that that tree will provide healing for the nations. Abraham prayed, and the nation of Gerar was healed. The wombs were open, judgment was averted, and Abimelech was in good standing once again with the significant son. Who do you seek? for healing, for your own soul? Who do we seek for healing for our nation? Do we seek the only one who has the power to heal the nations? We ought to. It's not any man lesser than Jesus Christ that ultimately can intercede. In the picture back in Genesis 20, Abraham was pitifully unqualified for this position. Nevertheless, because he was a picture of one to come, he prayed, God heard his prayer, and the nation was healed. What can heal our land? Well, the son of Abraham, if you seek him, if you place your faith in him, if you turn to him, as the scriptures say, he will heal our land. He will heal your heart. The tree, that is the fruitfulness of his work and ministry, of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, has the power in its fruit, in its leaves, to heal the nations and to heal a heart. We see even in our text today, as we connect the dots, and see the patterns that there is glorious hope to come through the seed of the Messiah that was preserved by the sovereign against the predations of Abimelech and in spite of the faithlessness of Abraham. This is the power of our God. Let us close praising him today. Dear Lord, we thank you for the glorious authority and power of your word. We thank you for the beauty of its proclamation and connections. We thank you for the power and the precision of its applications even in our day. We pray that you would equip your church to be faithful to proclaim the terms of covenant even now. That without relationship with you through the significant Son, Jesus Christ, there is no hope for eternal life. But in Him is the promise of healing for people and nations who recognize that the fruit of redemption is the blood-bought saving work or the blood-bought promise of eternal life through the saving work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, who is crucified for our transgressions, who was wounded, bruised, and bleeding for our iniquities, and who was risen again, who rose again on the third day as victor over sin, death, and the grave, 
who ascended to the Father and ever rules and reigns, subduing his enemies all the while, and will one day recreate this world in his perfect image such that there is no trace or remembrance of sin and sorrow anymore. But all that remains is the glorious beauty of the Lord and his perfect intentions in creation, redeemed and sanctified and glorified so that he might be the, uh, acknowledged and worshipped forever without end by every believer who casts their, their crowns before the throne of the Lamb of God, singing, Worthy is his name. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and equip us through this vision of hope through your holy scriptures that we might stand faithful and when the next test comes, when we face that which can, uh, our flesh might fear, that we would stand in faith, acknowledging that if we fear the Lord, that we have nothing we need to be concerned about because of your power demonstrated through scripture, demonstrated in the gospel, and even our own testimony. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.